Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require signs, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. All right, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. Now, this is the third year. So when he says at the first, um, could be two things. It could be Daniel 2 or Daniel 7. This is two years. Daniel 8 is two years after Daniel 7. Right, so Belshazzar is still reigning, but um, a lot of the historical information says that at this point, Persia is encamping around their home or their their city, their beautiful city, the impenetrable city, Babylon. That's like I don't know if you've been looking at the stuff about people who have way too much money and decide to get in a stupid submarine and float down to the Titanic. The ship that they said could not sink. It was unsinkable till it sunk. (laughs) Babylon was impenetrable. You could not get into Babylon unless you found a way to cut off the Euphrates River. Then you could just walk right in (laughs) and take the place, which is what they did. Or unless, unless you upset God to the point that it doesn't matter how powerful you are, Uh, Anybody could come. A mouse could walk in and take you down. (laughs) Verse two. And I saw in a vision and it came to pass when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in a vision and I saw by the river of Uli that I lifted up mine eyes and saw and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other and the higher came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward so that no beast might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, I I, uh, behold, and he goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns which I had seen standing before the river and ran into him 
in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler against him. That's extreme anger. It's hot anger. Moved with choler. And smote the ram, and brake his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the, the great horn was broken, and for it came up four notable ones toward, toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. And it waxed great even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Yea, he magnified himself to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And an host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. Then I heard one saint speaking, and, and, and another saint said unto that saint, which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden down, trodden underfoot? And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. All right, so that's the... That's the vision. Of course, this chapter is like chapter seven. Uh, you know, the first 14 verses are the vision and then 15 through, was it 28, are the interpretation. So that, that's basically how the chapter is divided. You, you have the, these characters being introduced. And so from Daniel 2, 4 to Daniel 7, 28... And uh, we've already talked about this, but just we're in the middle of it now. So I might as well remind you of it. To 728, we're all written in Aramaic. Everything else is written in Hebrew. And of course, this, this, this entire portion details the times of the Gentiles. Or the time of the Gentiles. And it's written in the, the Gentile language of the day. All right, so today, what would it be? What's the, what's the dominant Gentile language today? English, English whether China likes it or not. <laughs> um, but in this day, it was Aramaic. And so the, it's written, this is dealing with the time of the Gentiles. It's dealing with things that are relevant not only to the, to the Hebrews, but also uh, to the Babylonians and the Persians and, and, and the people that would come uh, in, in this period. So this part of, of the book is written in, in a language they could understand, that they can relate to, that they can read and, 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 and gain some understanding from. But the rest of the book is all about the Jews, and it directly relates to what's coming. It directly relates to what's coming for them, what's going to happen to them, their interaction with the Antichrist and, and all these horrible events that are going to take place. So it's written in Hebrew. Um, now, the Bible doesn't tell us that, but that, that's, that just seems like a logical explanation to what's going on here um, and why it would be 
randomly written in, in those two different languages. Um, chapter 8 builds upon chapter 7 and further reveals details regarding the interaction between Israel and the dominating power during the time of the Gentiles. And of course, we know it's going to change hands uh, throughout time. The early and latter portions of the book written in Hebrew are more specific to the future realities that the Jews will face. So let's look at verses 1 and 2 again. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even even unto me, Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. And I saw in a vision, and it came to pass when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in a vision, and I was by the river Uli. Now, like as we said, two years have passed since the vision uh, was given in, in Daniel 7. And Elam was east of Babylon, stretching from India to the Persian Gulf. So it's a massive area. right? But what's so interesting about this is it was taken at some point by Cyrus. And, it, and um, as their empire expanded... It became sort of the headquarters for the Persian Empire. But as far as we know, at this time, that, that wasn't the case yet. And yet Daniel's being transported to this place. And, and you know, so it's as though God is telling us the Persians will be there. So I need you to go there, <laughs> whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. But I need you to go and, 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 and I've got some things I need to reveal to you. And um, Cyrus would eventually take it through his military campaigns. Cyrus took everything. Whatever he wanted, he just went and took it. And um, nobody, I mean, even, even the, you think about the, historically, the great power of Pharaoh. And Cyrus whooped Pharaoh like it was nothing and sent him running back to Egypt. And Pharaoh went home and stayed home. <laughs> now, verses three and four. Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, so that no beast might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, and he did according to his will, and became great. So now we're introduced to the ram. And... um, Unlike chapter 7, where the Bible gives us no indication what these animals are, in chapter 8, the Lord tells us specifically in the interpretation who they are. Now, in both chapter 8 and chapter 7, the focus is the Antichrist or the little horn. So if I met him, that's what I would call him. Hi, little horn. <laughs> where's, where's little at? Where's little horn? Um, but I won't meet him, Lord willing. <laughs> so I'll be gone. But that, that, so, so when you're trying to understand the chapter, both these chapters, both seven and eight, you've got to keep this in mind. This is the context. This is the focus. It, it, it's not this. Everybody gets lost on well, what's the bear? Who's the bear? Who does it represent? What's the eagle and the, the lion and all these? Like that, the reason there's no explanation of those things, as we very clearly saw in, in chapter 7, is it's not the focus. 
Daniel could have asked any number of questions. And what he said was, can you tell me about the fourth beast (laughs) that's diverse from all the others? It's like, you have no interest in what that lion is. Like, you don't care what the, that, that leopard is not a regular leopard. You couldn't ask some questions about that. And Daniel said, no, I want to know about the Antichrist. Who is that? And, and that's the point of these chapters of chapter seven and chapter eight is to reveal the Antichrist. And so when somebody gets hung up on who they think these animals represent, you're just, you're off track. The whole chapter, they briefly mention, and then the Lord just forget, drops it off, forgets all about it and moves on to the Antichrist. And the entire interpretation of chapter seven is about the Antichrist. And it's going to be very similar here. Now we're given more information here. But you're going to see the information given you about the ram and the he-goat. Both of them are, try, are, are pointing you to this. It's the whole point. The only reason it's explained, the only reason we're given more information is because it's, it's building up to the Antichrist is going to come out from the he-goat, which is Grisha, at some point. And I'm getting ahead of myself, but you'll, you'll see what I mean as we go. So the interpretation of the vision given to Daniel begins in verse 15. Now, these passages make no sense whatsoever without the help of the interpretation. Reading what we just read, who knew that that was Persia without the angel who came in the second half of the chapter and said, by the way, that's Persia. (laughs) You would have no idea. And what people do is say, well, it has two horns. And so because it has two horns, that's media and Persia. You know that because it tells you that in the second half of the chapter. (laughs) Otherwise, you'd just be guessing. You'd have no idea. All right. So, so it just these are things that I um, I struggle with because some guys they read they read a passage and then they 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 try so hard to draw things out of it that don't exist, and and they're trying their best to what this really means is and what that really means. No, it means what it says, and then the explanation is given in the second half of the chapter. So, if you want an interpretation of what it says. That's where it is. And, and even still, it means what it says. And so, so you take, take God at his word. Now, in verses 19 through 20, the angel tells us uh, that he will make Daniel to understand the vision. Let's look at verse 15 real fast. Let's just read those and get those in our head. And it came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning. So Daniel had no idea what this meant. He saw all this and he said, what? <laughs> what does that mean? I don't understand. All right, but you know, then comes a Christian to 2,500, 3,000 years later. What this means is, shut up. You don't know what it means. <laughs> Not unless God tells you what it means. Well, I have the Holy Spirit inside. Right. You don't have the character and understanding of Daniel. <laughs> you can't interpret dreams, and, and you don't have kings elevating you to the highest position of the land, so I... Uh, there's no comparison, but, but Daniel didn't understand it, but he sought for the meaning. Then behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man. So what, are the, what do angels look like in the Bible? A man. How do they talk in the Bible? As a man. Not glowing, no halos and stuff over his head. Doesn't have long flowing hair, no wings. I mean, that that all looks interesting, but... I'm afraid when, when we actually see an angel, we're going to be like, oh, that's it? <laughs> like, where's, where's the wings and, the, <laughs> and the, the glowing head and all that stuff? It's like, 
No, men just made that up. When he saw this angel, it looked like a man, and that was, that was it. Later, he's going to say, I heard them talking, and it was the voice of a, of a man. And so that, that's what an angel is. Verses 19 and 20, let's read those real quick. And he said, Behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation. For at the time appointed, what shall be? Okay, so, so th- these are the two main things. For our context, Antichrist and the end. Now, this is so important because, as we're going to see, there are some teachings. I know Larkin alludes to them, but he doesn't teach it. Um, Yeah, right here. On the one that says the book of Daniel, if you have it with you, if you don't, it's okay. he names a man here whose name is Antiochus Epiphanes. And um, he's a historical figure who came out of the, the Grecian Empire eventually. And he was just a vile human being. And he, he, he dominated the Jews and he hated them. And so he desecrated the temple, put pig's blood in the temple. He set up a, um, an image of Zeus in the temple and did all these you know, horrendous things and cause, you know, the Jews to have a lot of trouble. He persecuted them, killed thousands of them. Some estimations are like 80,000 Jews were killed under, under his, his reign in Jerusalem. And um, so a lot of people, because of some difficulties in chapter 8, they teach that Antiochus Epiphanes is the little horn of chapter 8. That's a terrible mistake because it completely violates... The context. And if you violate the context because of some, you know why they, the reason they do it, and we're going to talk about it, is because a number of days is mentioned that they don't know what to do with. Well, what's this 2,300 days? Well, if you don't know what the 2,300 days is, why ruin the entire chapter in the context of the entire chapter? Because you don't know what one little thing is in the chapter. Just say, I don't know. But I know that the time of the end is the context. And the little horn is going to take out, you know, the stars of heaven. You're telling me Antiochus Epiphanes way back then took out the stars of heaven? No. He's going to go against the prince of princes, Jesus Christ. It's like, wow, Antiochus Epiphanes went against Jesus Christ? I don't remember that in the Bible. And I mean, historically, I'm struggling to find that because it doesn't exist. So he can't be... The, the little horn of, of, that's going on that, that it's talking about here. It makes no sense to, to present that as a possible explanation of who the little horn is. Every chapter we're going through is, is taking us to the time of the end. The context is the time of the end. The coming of the Antichrist, who he is, where he's coming from, what he's going to do. And then suddenly we throw in there some random man that hated the Jews. Well, couldn't Hitler be <laughs> the, the, the little horn? I mean, just who else could we make up and put in that position? And so it it makes no sense. It it doesn't fit. It violates the context of the passage. And so because they can't understand or or they they don't know what to do with the 2300 days, they rob the entire passage of its context and force some sort of historical figure to take place of the little horn, which 
Makes no sense. And then the worst part is what they say, and, I, and I'm, a lot of this is going to be repeated later. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. They say that Antiochus Epiphanes, when he set up his uh, image of Zeus and put pig's blood in the temple, that he did it exactly for 2,300 days. So I searched for the dates. <laughs> and everywhere I searched, it says, we don't know when he started and when he ended. So for you to say he did it for 2,300 days is a complete guess. At best, I don't think it's a guess. I think someone just doesn't know what to do with the 2300 days. So they just made it up and said, well, he persecuted the, the, the Jews in the temple for 2300 days. I need him to persecute them for 2300 days so I can say it's Antiochus Epiphanes. Because if he didn't do it for 2300 days, then I have I have nothing. <laughs> and so you have nothing. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't work. It doesn't fit. Um, and and I, I there I have. I see no reason whatsoever to add Antiochus Epiphanes into, the, into these chapters. The context are two things. The little horn and the time of the end. Antiochus Epiphanes is not coming back at the time of the end. He has no relationship to the time of the end. Now again, what, what is the time of the end? End of the tribulation, second coming of Jesus Christ. That's where all this is pointing. And he doesn't fit that. Now, a second, to be honest, or to be intellectually honest, or to be fair, a second aspect of the chapter that causes them to, to come up with some sort of historical, some, 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 add some historical figure in, into, the, into the passage, uh, like Antiochus Epiphanes, is you have this admixture of historical events that are going to happen after Daniel and also before the time of the end. But the focus is not on those historical events. It, it breezes right past those quickly and goes straight to this little horn. The point is to introduce the little horn. And he's going to come from, he's going to come from here. And so you need this information to get you here. That's the purpose. That's the reason. That's the, that's the focus. So the context is the last end of the indignation and the time of the end. This is significant when trying to understand what is happening in the, in the context of the passage. The focus is not on the ram or the he-goat. They are needed to help introduce us to the Antichrist, also known as the little horn. Little guy. It's just a little guy. He doesn't mean any harm. Except he's going to cause a lot of harm. As we progress through this book... The focus continually shifts to Daniel's 70th week. So we're, we're progressing. You know, we go from Daniel 2 and the image of Daniel 2, and it's the, the Gentile powers um, that, you know, that, that are going to ro- rule and reign. And uh, eventually we get to the church age. We have that, that pause, that period. We have four kingdoms who come. Um, and then Jesus Christ and John, John the Baptist comes and introduces Jesus Christ. Under the Roman Empire, under their reign, Christ dies, he's buried, he rises from the dead. Then all the, all the political specifics disappear. Then it's the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Until, until the church is taken away. And when the church is taken away, we go right, once the church is taken out, we go right back to, to finishing this image to the ten kings. They, they come on the scene, and sometime after they come on the scene, then, then you have Jesus Christ and his return. All right, so 
But, but as we progress through the book, we go from this general timeline. Then we get to Daniel 7, and we're, and we're introduced to the, to the little horn who will come from these 10 kings, who will, who will be elevated by these 10 kings. Well, then in Daniel 8, we're going to find out of these 10 kings, he's going to come specifically from one of one of four. And what's interesting about this is these four possibly come from right here. Now, I know that's a lot of information right now, but just we're going to repeat a lot of it and you're going to see it as we go. Everybody with me so far? Rather than allowing ourselves to get hung up over the animals representing the first four kingdoms, we'll focus where the, the angels and Daniel place theirs on the little horn. That, that's the focus of both chapters. Rather than making up stories about the eagle being America and the bear being Russia and all this stupidity that you couldn't find in the Bible if you search the rest of your life, you focus on what the chapter is telling you to focus on. Both, both chapters, Daniel said, yeah, but what about the little horn? That, I need to know about that. And that's what the chapter is, is trying to introduce you to and trying to, trying to point you to. All right, so um, the previous information is nothing more than a means to that end. We will also be helped by keeping in mind that certain information has been sealed unto the end. And therefore, like chapter 7, may not be available to us for some time. So as I teach this, you say, I disagree with that. Praise the Lord. <laughs> I disagree with yours too. <laughs> I don't even know what it is. <laughs> but certain information in Daniel 7 and in Daniel 8 both explicitly say it's sealed to the time of the end. All right, so I, we, we may have fun teaching this and learning this, and you may find out when we get to heaven, yeah, what he taught you, what everybody taught you. <laughs> it's all wrong. Oh, well, what about what I thought? It was wrong too. <laughs> like, so just get over it. Why fight over it? It's, it? I mean, you're reading a chapter that literally tells you at the end, by the way, I sealed it up. So you want to fight over it and argue over it? Like God is telling you that, that certain parts of this you're not going to get right now. And we talked about that, just like the prophets of old who prophesied of the of, of New Testament salvation and the coming of the Messiah and his death on the cross. And they put their pen down and look at God and say, what is this? And he says, it's not for you. Just write it down. That could very well be where we are. Now, he told Daniel, I'm going to make you understand this. But he didn't say he was going to make us understand it. All right? And so, so we have no guarantees that, that what the, the safest thing we can do is follow the context of the chapter. And the things that we can't answer, just <laughs> there's no answer for. Sorry. Yeah, but what about, I don't know. <laughs> give me to make up a story. I can go sit home. I can go home and make up a nursery rhyme and bring it back and give it to you. I mean, if that'll make you feel better. But there, there's going to be certain information that is not available to us. That's just how it is. And the more you become comfortable with that, then the better, the better time you're going to have with these chapters. Amen. All right. The ram having two horns is the king or the kings of Media and Persia. And we know this because I'm so intelligent 
and understanding and have such great wisdom that I figured it out. Oh, you figured it out too? <laughs> or because the Bible literally tells you this is the, king, the kings of Media and Persia. Um, and so I, I think that's a blessing. I, it'd be nice to, to, have, to have such insight and intellect that everyone thinks I'm just amazing. Um, or I could just believe the Bible and hope that people think that I believe the Bible. I could either have great insight that means absolutely nothing in, the, in, 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 in reality, or I can believe what the Bible says and, and have a lot, have a good, firm foundation. And I just believe what it says. I don't, I don't, I'm not going to go to a history book and try to force something into this. I'm, I'm not going to go to some random passage in the Bible that has nothing to do with this and try to force it into this. Just believe what it says, and it says that, that those are the kings of Media and Persia. Uh, and so we, we, we don't need some arbitrary connection to history. Now, it just so happens, historically, uh, th- this, this layout that we talked about here, so this is going to be, you know, Babylon, uh, Persia, Grecia, Rome, and then, of course, the church age, right? Historically, it, it, it worked like this exactly. Like there's exactly as God prophesied here before it happened. It happened exactly like this. So in this case, history is in in, in line with the Bible, but I don't go to history to try and understand the Bible because of the biblical principles and the biblical truth. I can better understand history. Does that make sense? So I'm not going to try and drag what historians, because if you go and read about any of these, your, your best chance of learning anything is going to be about Rome because it was the closest to us and they kept a lot of records. But anything before Rome, even, even trying to understand things that happened in the Roman Empire, there's, there's a ton of missing information in context. And so you're going to have people write entire books. I have a book about um, Nineveh. This guy, I mean, I was all excited to read it. This guy, he's an explorer and he goes to Nineveh or where he thinks Nineveh is or was. And he's doing all this exploration and it's, it's in some part of Iraq. And nothing in the book is about Nineveh. It's all about him and his friends hanging out and doing things and trying to discover where this place is. It was like, what? I want my money back. <laughs> the, the title of the book is Nineveh. <laughs> and there's nothing in this book about Nineveh. And so it's, it's just a lot of speculation. And because he has a Ph.D. behind his name, it's a top-rated top selling book. It's an expensive book. Stupid book. Had nothing about Nineveh in it. And so I go and I try to read about Babylon. You read all this information. And then it says, but we don't really know. <laughs> well, why didn't you say that in the beginning so I didn't waste my time reading your speculation? You're just making stuff up. And, and so that, but that's, that's the historical way of doing things. And so we don't, sometimes it's interesting to look at the history. And, and it's a blessing when uh, historians and archaeologists and all these people involved, the different sciences involved, are, have enough integrity to leave it alone and just, just say, this is what we found. Here are the facts. And so what they do instead is they try, they try their best to hope Maybe this discovery will disprove the Bible, and it never does. And, and so 
It's, it's interesting that a lot of, many historians have spent their entire life's work trying to disprove the Bible only to find discoveries that prove the Bible is exactly right. So they set out to make their entire life's work to disprove the Bible, and in the end, their entire life's work supports the Bible. I think that is hilarious and, and, and funny. Now, some of them are converted by it. Some of them have enough integrity, and they say, the Bible is exactly right, and, and they, end up getting, they end up trusting in the Lord or becoming some kind of Christian. Who knows? But uh, some, of them, some of them don't care. They can see it as, as blaringly as possible. I don't care. <laughs> and they will not trust in, in, in the Lord. So, um, all right. So let's read verses 3 through 14 real quick. And get some, some broader context for the next bit of information. I'm going to try to finish the whole chapter tonight. So verse 3. Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and, and the higher came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, so that no beast might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, uh, but he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, behold, an he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth, and touched not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes." And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran into him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close under the, under the ram, and he was, he was moved with choler against him, and smote the ram and brake his two horns, and there was no power in the ram to stand before him. And he cast, down, he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore, the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and for it he came up, uh, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south, and toward the east, and toward the pleasant land. And it waxed great even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host of the stars to the ground, and stamp, stamped upon them. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down, and an host was given him against the da- daily sacrifice by reason of transgression. And it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And he said unto me, Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. All right. So in the passage, we're introduced to four characters. We have the ram, the he-goat, the four horns, and the little horn. And Daniel begins to hear two saints talking about the vision. And in verses 13 through 14, a question is asked as the saints are talking. How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice 
and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden under foot. Um, it's a, it seems like a similar question that the, the apostles asked in Matthew 20, 24. Uh, the Lord's looking at the temple and saying, it's going to be destroyed. And they're like, when are these things going to be? <laughs> when, when are we doing this? And um, he, tell, he gives them the answer. So the 2,300 days. This is, the, this is what causes everybody to suddenly throw out the little horn being the Antichrist and make him Antiochus Epiphanes because they don't know what to do with the 2,300 days. All right, now, I'm going to present to you an idea, but this is the reality. It, it's random and doesn't fit with everything we know about the, the, the seven-year tribulation, right? Because the starting point is very clear, and we're going to talk about all that in just a second. The starting point is unbelievably clear. So we know when the 2,300 days are going to start, in fact, that's what's so amazing is this, the starting point matches Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 11, Daniel uh, 9, uh, Matthew 24. I mean, it matches everything we know about the Antichrist. But suddenly they say, well, that because of this, because of these 2300 days, and I don't know what to do with these 2300 days, it's Antiochus Epiphanes. <laughs> it's, it's not the Antichrist. Uh, so I, I, I would rather be off a little bit about the 2300 days and be correct about the Antichrist. So we'll do, we'll do our best with the 2300 days. And, you know, honestly, your guess is as good as mine. But we'll do our best to try and put together a narrative that makes sense with what we know from the Bible. And that's the best we can do with it. But I would not rip the entire chapter of its context because I don't know what to do with a number that pops up in it. I would rather be wrong about the number than the entire chapter. <laughs> that makes no sense. All right, so uh, the 2,300 days, that, that's the answer. How, how long will it, you know, the, the, the question is, how long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice? So, so you've got two things that are in the question. The daily sacrifice, and it's, it's unbelievably clear when that's going to stop. As you read Daniel, and you read Matthew 24, and you read other passages that related to this, it's, 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 it's unbelievably clear, all right? That, that's, everybody knows when that's going to happen in the course of events, all right? So then the second thing is uh, for, the, for the sanctuary uh, to give both the Sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot. All right, so actually it's three things. So you have the transgression of desolation, but this is connected to the, the sanctuary trodden underfoot. Now, how many times in Daniel have we read about the Antichrist doing this to the Jews? It comes up repeatedly. He stamped them with his feet. They're, they're trodden underfoot. Like that's, that, that is something he is going to try and do to the Jews and, and to their temple. All right, so the question is prompted by the previous statement that the little horn would take away the daily sacrifice 
and that the place of the sanctuary would be cast down. That, that's what prompted this, this question between these two saints that are talking in, in the vision. And the answer is, it'll be, it'll be for 2,300 days. Um, the Antichrist will be the person taking away the daily sacrifice. Thus, the 2,300 days begin when the Antichrist stops the daily sacrifice. So this time period, it starts when the Antichrist takes away the daily sacrifice. All right, so when, when, when that happens, this, this starts ticking. That time begins. All right, we're, we're gonna we're gonna try to build some some we're gonna try to build a narrative here. So just just stay with me. Um, this is where the inevitable, inevitable confusion or disagreement abounds. The number of days given here does not neatly fit within the time period for the timing of the 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 event. Now, what is the what is the overall event that's happening? So we have. The time of Jacob's trouble, which is how long? What'd you say? They wish it was only that long. The time of Jacob's trouble is seven years, which is broken into two parts. Tribulation that is 1,260 days or 3.5 years or 42 months. And then the second part is the great tribulation. And it's the same, 1,260 days, 3.5 years or 42 months. All right, so, so all, all of this is happening, but, but what... What's the what what causes this three and a half years? What 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 happens three and a half years into the seven years? So the Antichrist he breaks the covenant, stops the daily sacrifice, and then uh, uh, sets up the abomination. All right, so this happens three and a half years into it. So the first half is called the tribulation. That's, that's from the time the covenant is made to three and a half years in. Three and a half years in, the Antichrist does this, stops the daily sacrifice, sets up the abomination of des- desolation, breaks the covenant with the Jews, then begins great tribulation, the second half of the, of, of the time of Jacob's trouble. At the same time, when he does this, Right? This starts. That's where our mathematical problem comes in. And that's where everybody says, I don't know what to do with that. So have you heard of Antiochus Epiphanes? (laughs) What about Hitler? (laughs) Let's just pick somebody who killed the Jews and say it's him. (laughs) All right. So I don't think we can do that. Though it, 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 it is a complex situation. There's, there's no doubting that. 
I, I get people's reservations, but I, I have, I'm going to force myself to stay with the context of the chapter, though I can only make some suggestions about this 2300 days. Yes, sir. So the, those dates start in the, in the middle of the tribulation. So in the middle of the tribulation, we're going we're to break it down more. Middle of the tribulation, you've only got 1,260 days left before the tribulation is over. And this goes for 2,300 days. How? Now, you can't reasonably separate this from this and this. It's the same event. When he stops the daily sacrifice, that's what, that's what cuts the tribulation in half and shifts us from tribulation to great tribulation. And that's also the starting point for this 2,300 days. <laughs> that's a difficult situation. What does it mean? Uh, how can these 2,300 days continue running past the, the seven-year tribulation? When Jesus Christ is going to come back and put down his enemies and, and, and put a stop to all this. It's not an easy thing to try and understand. <laughs> Uh, but the context of the chapter is unbelievably clear. So then this is a perfect example. You don't violate what's clear for something that's unclear. You don't suddenly say, well, I got to throw away the whole chapter and just make up some historical explanation and remove this away from the tribulation or the time of the end, which it repeatedly says, this is going to happen in the time of the end. Well, I don't, in order for me to be able to make this chapter fit neatly in a box, I got to take that out of the time of the end and put it somewhere else. Well, you can do that if you want to, but you'd be violating the, the context of the chapter, which means you're just making something up. The words mean nothing. Right? So, so you, can't, you can't do that and stay within the context. Um, we're just going to have to admit this is a difficult situation. Now, I'm going to give you what I... The best explanation I have seen, it's not even my explanation, it's the best one that I've seen because hardly anybody else offers one. They, they either just, you know, so, it's so funny, like you'll, you'll see this commentary that on, you know, verse, you know, the, the verses prior to the 2300 days, you know, they, they've got paragraphs of information. Then you get to the 2300 days and there's one word and then they move to the next verse. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> what? <laughs> what happened here? They're like, well, yeah, we don't want to just move on, <laughs> go to something else. And, and then the other thing is you'll, you'll have people who say, well, this can't be in the time of the tribulation because we can't have this 2300 days here. So, so we're moving it to somewhere else and making it somebody else. And that's what they end up doing. And I have more respect for the guys who just put one word about it and moved on. Because what they're saying is, I don't know, but I'm not going to violate the context of this chapter to make up something and, and force this to be somebody that it's not. And so that's what we want to not do. Uh, all right. Now, the time the Antichrist stops the daily sacrifice to the end of the tribulation is three and a half years. 42 months, 
1,260 days, right? Everybody with me there? Okay. We're going we're gonna to do the math real fast, and then I'll, I'll tell you what I think. And if you say, I disagree with that, I'll just smile at you and tell me, I can't wait to hear what you think. <laughs> you, you let me know what you figured out. And, and we'll put them side by side and just say, neither one of us knows. So you have 2,300 days. You have 1,260 days. All right. Both related to the desecration of the temple and both start. Both start when the daily sacrifice is taken away. Right. There, there, are, there are three or four cross references to that event. And and everyone knows that event happens halfway in the midst. Daniel 9, 27 literally says in the midst of the week. That's when it happens. Same event. And then suddenly in chapter eight, they're like, well, maybe this is a different one. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll slide this somewhere back in history to one of the men who desecrated the temple. How many, how many kings of Israel desecrated that temple? Why couldn't it be one of them? All right, so it just it makes no sense to just pick somebody, though Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, he's definitely a type of the Antichrist. He's a horrendous person. Uh, he was, his own people considered him to be a madman. I mean, he was insane. He was like most of the popes and Roman emperors, <laughs> just sick in the head. So, all right, so you got this. The answer to the question informs us the temple will be in this condition for 2,300 days. Because of this perceived discrepancy, many have chosen to force this passage into a historical context and say that the little horn of Daniel 8 is the historical figure Antiochus Epiphanes. Because they struggle with the number of days given in the passage, they destroy the entire context of the passage and try to reconcile the 2300 days, to try and reconcile the 2300 days. All right, now, in, in the context, the daily sacrifice will cease halfway through the tribulation. The tribulation hasn't happened yet. As far as I know, anybody, unless I missed something, has the tribulation happened yet? No. I, I fully expect to be raptured away. Before the tribulation begins, I was going to say long before, but it might be the day before, it might be an hour before, whatever. It'll be before before the tribulation begins, I will be gone. I belong to Jesus. He's coming to get me. You belong to Jesus, he's coming to get you. All right, so we won't be here for this, but um, but, but the, 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 the point is you can't remove this... Forcing the stop, the stoppage of the daily sacrifice from every cross reference that details the stoppage of the daily sacrifice. You can't make this some special one off situation, which means it didn't happen historically because the tribulation hasn't happened yet. We're not three and a half years into it yet. It couldn't be there. It couldn't exist. All right. So the time period known, known as the time of Jacob's trouble is a seven year period that is yet future. The first three and a half years of that seven years are called the tribulation. And we've, I know we've gone over this repeatedly, but one day you're going to run into somebody that's going to make you come back and thank me that I said it over and over and over and over and until you remembered it. Because you're going to run into people who think some wild things and teach some wild things about the tribulation. 
All right, so three and a half years, the first three and a half years is the tribulation. Second three and a half years is called great tribulation. After the first three and a half years, the Antichrist will break his covenant with the Jews and force the daily sacrifice to cease. At the same time, he will set up the abomination of desolation and he will present himself as God in the temple. All right, all, all that is coming. He's going to put that image in the temple. It's going to be lifelike. And he's going to expect people to worship him as God. This will begin great tribulation and this 2,300 days. Both are going to begin at the same time when when the daily sacrifice is stopped and the, uh, the abomination of desolation is set up. All right. Now, look at, look at Daniel 9 real fast. Verse 27. Let's get some more context. Verse 27, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Now, this is one week of what? Of what's one week of years. It's a prophetic week. All right, so it's not seven days, it's seven years. And, and we'll talk about that more when we get to it. I, I, you all know that already, but, but I don't think you've seen it directly. And so we're going to talk about that specifically when we get to it. But he makes a covenant for one week. That week is seven years. It's the seven-year period. And this is what makes me believe that the tribulation will start when this covenant is made. When Israel and the Antichrist make this covenant, time starts ticking. you got seven years. All right? In the midst of the week. All right, so, so, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to what? Cease. Does that not match Daniel 8? He's going to cause the daily sacrifice to cease. That's exactly what's going to happen. And for the overspreading of abomination, he shall make it desolate. What was the question in Daniel 8? I erased it. How long will this desolation take place? How long will it be trodden underfoot? How long will he stop the daily sacrifice? Right? That was the question. And, and so, so it directly relates to this. Um, and he shall make it desolate even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. All right, so that's, that, that, there it is repeated again, and, and no one is confused about when Daniel 9 takes place. Everyone who studies the Bible and has any, any, any understanding whatsoever, they know that's talking about the tribulation period, the, the time of Jacob's trouble. And they know that in the midst of the week, that's in the middle of the seven years, three and a half years in, 1,260 days, 42 months, he stops the sacrifice, erects himself as God, sets up the image, that's the abomination of desolation, then begin the second period of three and a half years. All right. And I know I'm hammering this and repeating it over and over, but, but you'll see why in a minute. All right, so he breaks the covenant. Um, he forces the daily sacrifice to cease. And at the same time, he will set up the abomination of desolation and present himself as God. And then in Daniel 7, we have the midst of the week. The great tribulation is three and a half years, all right? That, that's the second half. It's three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days. Um. The removal of the daily sacrifice and the desolation of the temple is for 2,300 days. This is where our problem is reintroduced. That means this will, to some extent, last 
1,040 days after the end of the tribulation. And that's where everybody's like, I just don't know if I can say that. <laughs> but it, it has to be. That's what it says. It says he's going he's gonna to cause the daily sacrifice to cease. He's going to cause the temple to be desolate. And then we'll begin the 2,300 days. Well, that's also what's going to happen to cause, to cause us to shift to great tribulation. So that would be, this is going to be two years, 10 months, and 20 days. This would potentially coincide, and I think this is where there's a possible explanation. Which we'll talk about next week. Thanks for coming. Goodbye. <laughs> All right. So this is what I, I think might happen. All right. So you're going to have this. The, both of these are going to start at the same time. All right. You, you, both of these start when the daily sacrifice is taken away. All right. So they both start at the same time. They start counting down at the same time. At the end of this, the Lord returns. And he puts down Israel's enemies, but they don't necessarily yet restore the temple. Not until after the 2300 days is over, then at that time, Ezekiel's temple will be presented. And that's in Ezekiel uh, 40 through 43. We have this description of the temple that that will be the future temple. And so I believe when, when this is, is done and Ezekiel's temple is ready, then they will restore operations in the temple. But it will be, some, it will be this amount of time after the end of the tribulation. Y'all looking at me like I just let you down. <laughs> That's the best I got. Uh, without robbing the chapter from its context and without introducing new problems, I mean, we don't know exactly when Ezekiel's temple is going to be brought down or, or uh, put in place or built or however it's, however it's put in its place. Uh, but if this is any factor, it could be 1,040 days after the end of the tribulation. The other answer, I have no idea what the 2,300 days is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I thought after the tribulation we are entering into the, the kingdom. Mm-hmm. So those years, there will be a temple there. So they are part of their thousand years. The, yes, it ha- it has to go into that. Yes. Now. When, like exactly when the millennial reign starts, 
Does it start after all the judgments are over? How long does that take? Or, you know, there, there's, there's some leeway. There's some potential leeway there. It's, it, 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 the, if, you, if you put it all together, it doesn't, you could possibly say it's exact, like it's just going to be boom, 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 and, and there's no gap of time in between any of them. But um, there's also the potential that, the, that the, there's going to be some leeway that these judgments got to take place. Everyone's going to be divided. You know, there's going to be things going on at that time. There may be some preparation. There may, you know, I don't know how long all that's going to take. Um, I mean, God can make it happen as quickly as he wants, but there are other people involved, which means it's got, to some extent, it might take some time. Um, How do you judge all the nations in in a moment of time? I mean, I have no doubt God could do it if he wanted, but... I think that judgment is going to is going to impact the understanding of those nations. It's not going to be a, a rush thing. They're going to be they're going to be questioned and, and have to explain themselves. All right, so um, that's a possible suggestion. It is by no means a definitive answer. If somebody came and said, "I disagree with that," I'm like, good, tell me yours so I can <laughs> so I can hopefully have another answer. But um, that. Either the, either the answer is that or, or there's not one. And we don't know what this 2300 days is. But again, the important thing, the important thing is we're not going to go back and violate the context of the chapter so I can try and make, make this fit somewhere. Even if you did that, even if you said it was Antiochus Epiphanes, why 2300 days? That makes no sense whatsoever. Why wasn't it seven years or three and a half years? That would kind of make some sense. Uh, but 2,300 days, just a, a random choice by God. Well, I mean, probably wasn't random to him. He knows exactly why he chose it, but he didn't explain it to me. And Daniel didn't ask. When I meet Daniel, we're going to have a talk. <laughs> like, Because <laughs> like, when I'm going through these chapters... You got to ask questions, and they answered your questions. And that's all you wanted to ask? You didn't want to, what is this 2,300 days? And what is this? And what is that? Like, I need you to be more detail-minded next time. So, thus, after the three and a half years, it looks like temple worship will not be restored for two years, 10 months, and 20 days after the end of the tribulation. Possibly. This would potentially coincide with Ezekiel's temple, If so, then the cleansing of the temple will be accomplished by replacing it with the one described by Ezekiel. As a possible explanation, this fits in in the context provided in Daniel 8, though it may not be a definitive explanation. It's definitely not something I would argue with somebody about or expect a church to adopt as official doctrine. It's just a suggestion. All right. Any questions before we move on? Good. Glad there's no questions. Verse (laughs) 5. Let's read verses 5 through 7. And as I was considering, behold, an he-goat came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram and had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran into him in the fury of his power and I saw him come close unto the, the ram, and he was moved with choler against him, 
and smote the ram and broke his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him. And there was no, no, none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. So while considering the vision of the ram, suddenly and speedily, there comes a he-goat from the west. It moves so rapidly, it was as though it were flying. It appeared, it appeared rapidly and charged the ram in battle, and the ram could not stand against such speed and fury and power. So this historically is going to introduce us to Alexander the Great. Now, why would I say that historically it's going to present us to him? Why, why, why would I say this is him or representative of him? Well, it's actually representative of Grisha. But it, it, it's talking about the first king of Grisha. And it's an objective fact Historically, the first king of Grisha was Alexander the Great. Before that, and again, this will come up in the notes again, but before, before Alexander, Greece was Macedonia. And it was just scattered tribes that, you know, when you have family members that will take up for each other and, and you can't mess with the family member, but when, when their enemies are away, they hate each other <laughs> and fight each other. That's basically how it was. They, 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 you know, it was like Africa before the white man came. <laughs> everybody likes to pretend that everybody was here just sitting around campfires and, you know, sharing crickets and, and hanging out. And uh, that's not what was happening. They were killing each other. And, and so it was the same thing in Macedonia. That's just, that's the course of history. And they were this, these scattered tribes that were loosely connected and they would come together and protect each other if an outside enemy came. But if there's no outside enemy, they were fighting with each other. They hated each other. But then this unifying figure came at 20 years old. He became king of, of this scattered group of people, and he united them together, and they became Greece. And ended up being one of the most powerful countries in the world, at least for a time. Excuse. Yes, sir. You say that is the he goat? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, the, the ram is Media Persia. This is the heat goat. Now look at verse 21. It's, it's the interpretation or, or uh, um, helps add some context to what we just read. Uh, verse 21. And the rough goat is the king of Grisha. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. All right. Now, again, historically, objectively, Alexander was the first king of Grisha. His father was um, Philip of. His father was Philip of Macedonia or Macedon. All right. So when he became king, he was able to unite these scattered people, and they became a, a united country. And so they, that, they came to be known as Greece. Now we're told the he-goat is Grisha. Isn't that deep? So I think the he-goat is Grisha. No, the Bible tells you the he-goat is Grisha. You don't have to guess. Now who is the bear in chapter 7? 
Doesn't tell you. <laughs> yeah, Russia. <laughs> Russia running around with ribs in its mouth. All right, at the time of the vision, Grisha was a scattered array of warring states held together by tribal bloodlines. They hated each other, but they would protect each other from outside invaders. There was no way to know Greece would be a powerful, united country someday. When this prophecy was made, there was no indication whatsoever that, that there would be a, a unifying king to bring these people together and create the country of Greece. In fact, it, in, in, in Daniel's day, if you said that, people would be looking at that scattered group saying, you've lost your mind. Those people are going to unite and become a united country? There's no way. I don't believe it. Uh, but it. But it happened just like God said, which is pretty incredible. Um, it went from the scattered tribes of Macedonia to a united country under Alexander the Great. They were an unstoppable war machine. This, this man had... He had the ability to, to fight, to, to, to lead a, a, an army into battle, unlike anything anyone's ever seen. It, it wasn't that he was, it wasn't that their military was powerful. It was strong. They went against Darius. He had 600,000 men, 600,000 men. He had about 30,000 men and 5,000 cavalry. He just he had a way, he had a mindset that allowed him to outsmart every one of his enemies on the battlefield. In, in the moment, it wasn't like he went back and, and for months planned something. He's in the heat of the battle and he could send direction to his men and he could think of what to do and where they needed to be. And they trusted him so much, they'd go do it and they'd, they'd, win, every, they'd win every battle. They took out the Persian military. That's a that's a massive feat. I mean, the Persians were unbelievably powerful. And, and I don't know that you could say of Persia. All right, so when Babylon is taken, Belshazzar is a fool. He's, he's lascivious. He's, he's a drunkard. He's got a bunch of concubines around him. Then he decides to take all that and tempt God. What a stupid thing to do. All right, so he, he had, he, he's head of the most powerful country in the world, but he's Joe Biden. <laughs> all right, and so... They took advantage of it, and they took him out very easily. Well, you couldn't say that of Persia. Persia, I don't know that they really, I mean, they weren't exactly moral, but they, they, they didn't have a complete moron as their head. In fact, it's said of Darius, who, who, was, who, who he took out, that, that he was a good king. He was a, to some extent, was a good man. And so he was just king at the wrong time. The Lord decided it, it's time to move to the next kingdom. It's time to move from the, the silver to the... Uh, to the brass. And so, sorry, <laughs> you should have been king sooner and, and you could have lasted a little while, but it's time for you to go. And so Alexander came and just had an uncanny ability to fight wars and, and, and to win and just swept through. through th- I mean, he did un- unbelievable things, passed through mountain passes that nobody else would try and pass through. Uh, his men would wade through rivers all night and then you wake up the next morning and your enemy's right there, <laughs> right there next to you. So you think you got a river between you that you're okay. You just got to keep an eye out. And he sends his men up river several miles. They cross through the river all night and then come down and attack you the next morning. And you don't even know they're coming. 
You're looking at the people across the river, and all of a sudden this force comes down the river and takes you out. And so he, he just he had this incredible ability to do stuff like that. And, um, and that fits perfectly with, with the he-goat. Now, we don't need it to fit perfectly with the he-goat. God said, this is Grisha, and it's the first king of Grisha. All right, now it just so happens historically that, that when he went to battle, they moved quickly. In fact, that, that, that was how he uh, set his military up. He took, he took away a lot of the, the big, heavy, you know, so if you think of how the Romans fought. They had these huge shields and they had these large spears and, and the shields were almost as tall as they were. And they would get in, in line in this phalanx and, and they would just march straight at you. And it's very difficult to beat them. But it's a very heavy, heavily armored, heavy weapons, heavy, heavy shield type of type of fighting. Well, Alexander stripped his men of that, gave them this light round shield and, and they still had a spear, but everything was very light. They could jump on and off a horse and fight and move quickly. And, and so they were able to just blitz through countries and just take them almost at will. He had a little trouble when he got to India because they had elephants. Who wants to fight an elephant? <laughs> and that, I mean, all you, it's not like you've got a tank and you can blow it up. <laughs> like you're, you're, you're standing there and there's a, they're charging at you with elephants. It's like, what is this? <laughs> so... Uh, but they eventually, the parts of India that they wanted, they took. There, there was, you couldn't stop this man. In fact, it, it's, it's hard to get the, the truth about his death. Some say he drank himself to death. He was a drunkard and uh, just lived in excess to some extent. Um, but the, the dominant material on his death says that he died of marsh fever, which may have been some form of malaria in, in Babylon. So... So who knows? In this prophecy, the historical reality matches it perfectly. Uh, but we need the Bible to understand history. We do not need history to understand the Bible. Alexander was the first conquering king to come from the West. And the seat of Gentile power has pretty much been in the West since Alexander the Great. Uh, every king before that, Nebuchadnezzar came from the East, um, Persia came from the east. All, all the world powers came from the east until Alexander. He came from the west. And when he came from the west, that established what we know today as the west as the world power. And it hasn't. China wants to move the west off that out of that position. And, you know, if the west doesn't get its act together, they're going to. But right now, I mean, for hundreds of years, the west, since Alexander, the west has been in charge of the world. Which has been a good thing for the most part. Not always, but primarily. Um, you don't want communism or you know, some of the other more brutish ideologies you know, being in charge of the political powers of the world. You want someone, you know, like from, from, from Greece and Rome, you got, you got a, a republic and democracy and individual freedom and, and all those type ideas. You want a government that believes those things. Even if they don't actually exercise it, you want them to at least believe it. <laughs> that way you can have some semblance of free freedom and people will leave you alone. All right. Now, the battles between Persia and Greece um, were, were instigated by Persia's desire to conquer. They were brutal and ruthless. When Alexander became king, Greece remembered all those previous scars 
and wanted revenge. Hence the fury with which the he-goat conquers the ram. Uh, repeatedly, Persia tried to take parts of Macedonia and probably did take parts of Macedonia, uh, but they tried relentlessly. They were brutal about it. And they would go into Macedonia and they would kill hundreds or thousands of people. And even if they couldn't take it, they, they killed them anyways and then would retreat and come back and do it again later. Um, so there was a lot of deep wounds and scars, a lot of animosity between those two. And then God said, Alexander, it's your turn. <laughs> and he took full advantage of it and mounted up. And there, there's even there's a story that I don't believe. I, it'd be interesting if it were true. But it says that someone showed Alexander that he was this goat in the Bible and that it had an effect on certain areas that he took, like he didn't cause problems for Jerusalem and things like that. So that'd be neat. It'd make a neat movie. <laughs> but I don't think it, I don't know it's true. Uh, could be, but I doubt it. Verse 8. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when it was strong, the great horn was broken, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. All right. The great horn was the first king of Grecia, right? We, we saw that in the interpretation. Historically, the first king uh, of, of the united tribes of, Maced- of the Macedonians was Alexander. This united kingdom uh, came to be known as Grecia or Greece. Now look at verse 22. Let's get the, the explanation or the interpretation. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, out of the nation, but not in his power. All right. So um, Alexander was a brilliant king with unbelievable skill in war and tactics. He could devise a battle plan in the heat of battle that was unmatched by any other. He also inspired his men to attempt some of his wild requests. But he was also known as a man of excess. His desire to conquer was never quenched. He drank excessively. He died at the age of 33. King at 20 conquers massive portions of the known world. According to God, potentially head of all Gentile powers in the world, dies at 33. <laughs> that's, a, that's a quick way to go. That didn't last long. He didn't even get to enjoy it. He didn't even get to go home and say, look what I've done. <laughs> he conquered and died. <laughs> and uh, he died at the age of 33 of swamp fever though some say alcohol may have played a role in his death. Others say it was malaria. Um, some say swamp fever was malaria. Uh, so it's, it's I, I don't know. Um, any children who could have been his successor were executed when he died. The warring tribes of Macedonia re-emerged and his kingdom was divided. Now again, it's an objective historical fact that Greece as a country was, was governed by military. All right, so though they had a king, he was subject to his generals. All right? Now, when he died, someone killed his children or, or anyone that could have been heir or taken his place. And so there became a political battle over who should 
be his successor. So well, you killed his children. That could have been an obvious answer. But, but this is, and you got to remember, this is new for Macedonia. They've been a kingdom, the Grecian kingdom, for 13 years. So what does a transition look like from one king to another for them? The same way it's going to look for Uganda when Museveni's gone. <laughs> You've had the same president for 30 plus years. What's, what's going to happen when you have the new, a new guy try and come in? He, he better be a strong man or it's not going to go well for him. Just trying to get the bodas under control is going to be, is going to be not, not to mention everything else. So, um, so these generals began, fight, began fighting, and then they split the territory into four parts. Now, again, that actually happened historically, exactly as the Bible said it would happen. There's no question about that. Otherwise, I wouldn't be standing here telling you. I'd be trying to find some other explanation. But it actually happened that way. All right? And so, um, Grisha became four empires. Here are the, the four. I'll just give you the main names. So, it was broken up into Egypt, Syria. Look at that. Isn't that interesting? The Antichrist is going to come from one of these four kingdoms. Guess which one? Thrace, and then Macedonia. All right, so the kingdoms were divided into these four larger overarching areas or territories. Egypt, Syria, and Asia Minor are, are combined together. Um, Thrace is modern Turkey, and Macedonia and Greece, which Greece is Macedonia, Macedonia is Greece, though um, Again, I'm getting ahead of myself, but it's very interesting. Every one of these kingdoms at some point passed away. Uh, some of them completely lost their name. Now, Egypt never lost its name, but it's, it's changed hands multiple times. Uh, the most recent king of Syria was, was, was a Turkish man, was a Turkish king. It was, in fact, there's a, there's a village in southern no, that was in Saudi Arabia. Sorry. Uh, Turkey, when they invaded, when they took Egypt, they also came down into Saudi Arabia. I, I got my locations mixed up there. But I'll tell you the story anyways. It's, it's interesting. They, the, as you go through southern Saudi Arabia, they have all these watchtowers that were built by the Turks when they, were, when they invaded Saudi Arabia. And they tried to uh, dominate this one village in, in southern Saudi Arabia. And uh, the people there didn't want to subject themselves to the Turks. So they climbed down the side of a mountain to a huge cliff and they built their entire civilization, their, their village on that cliff. And so every time the Turks would come down, they would just sit there and shoot, shoot arrows at them and throw rocks at them. So finally the Turks were like, just leave them, you know, let them, let them stay there. So they stayed there and the village is still there today. You can go, if you want, you can go down this little, um, uh, you know, like a suspended car that takes you down. I forget what they call it. Anyways, nobody's helping me out, so I'll just leave it there. But um, it'll take you down, and you can, you can uh, see the village and, and, and read the history of it. And so um, Turkey 
took Egypt and they took massive parts of Saudi Arabia and other parts of the Middle East. But Egypt has changed hands. It's been in the hands of the Romans. It's been in the hands of Alexander. It's been in, in the hands of uh, Muhammad. His, his group took it. And, and now you can't even find Coptics today, which were the people who were in Egypt. Now they're all Arabs or some form of Arabs because Muhammad went in and killed all the men and raped all the women and took everything. And uh, so it's, it's, t- it's changed hands multiple times. Uh, Syria completely was completely wiped off the map for a time. Thrace completely disappeared for a time. It's back today. Syria is back today. Egypt is an independent country again today. And Macedonia is a country again today. So, so when the Bible tells you that Gog and Magog will exist, should you try and figure out if Gog is Russia and Magog is China, or should you believe that Gog and Magog are going to exist on the map? I mean, God, what are the chances that these countries pass away, change hands, and now they're back? And I mean, Macedonia is like this little spot in the middle of the map. You wouldn't even know it existed if you didn't go looking for it. And it's there. Same with Thrace. And Syria. I mean, Thrace came back in the 1990s. Or no, maybe that was Macedonia. Uh, in the 1990s. One of these two. I was reading about it today. I think it was Macedonia. Anyways, just in 1990, Macedonia uh, broke away. It's, 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 it's in the Balkans in, in that area around Yugoslavia and, and uh, the, the Czech, Czechoslovakia and you know all, the, all that stuff. Uh, Bulgaria and that whole area. And so it and it broke away in the 1990s. It became the Republic of Macedonia. That's the name they chose. That's incredible. You're all looking at me like, what is Macedonia? <laughs> but, but that's when God says that something's going to be on the map and it's going to go after Israel. Don't try to figure out what it might be because it doesn't exist today. I guarantee you, Gog and Magog, something's going to happen. Some country's going to be divided and they're going to form a new government. And guess what they're going to call themselves? Gog or Magog. It's going to happen. All right. So just believe the words written in the book, not the bear. It has to be Russia because Russia has a best. They do the same thing with, uh, with, with the, the, the he goat. They say uh, Greece had a coin that had a goat on it. Lots of countries had a coin that had a goat on it. What does that mean? Nothing. All right, so don't, when you try to find symbols and, and, and all this stuff that exists in the world and force it into a biblical explanation of something, I'm going to make fun of you. Not that you care. I'm just telling you. You're going to look stupid. Don't do that. Believe the words in the Bible. Gog means Gog. Magog means Magog. Macedonia, Syria, Egypt, it, it, Guess what it means? Exactly what it says. And so I, I would just trust the Bible and leave things as they are. And people might look at you now and say, well, it doesn't exist on the map. Like, but it will. <laughs> so believe the Bible. Um, two of these four divided kingdoms have future prophecy relevance. Anybody guess what those two are? have future prophetic relevance. The Bible prophesies about two of these kingdoms in the future. Syria and Egypt. And you don't have to figure out what they are. (laughs) You just go to the map. There's Syria, there's Egypt. (laughs) What does it really mean, though? It means Syria and Egypt. Leave it alone. So uh, 
These two will be identified in chapter 11 as the north and the south. The Antichrist will come out of the north. Guess what the north is? Syria. Not wrong. <laughs> it literally tells you that these, these are your two options for where the, the, this king is going to come from. He's going to come from the north. That's not the north. That's the south. All right, so if you have your map, right, here's my, my map. Here's Israel over here. This is the, the sea passing through right here. You have Egypt here, and then right here you have Syria. Just like that. <laughs> All right, so the Antichrist, according to Daniel 11, which we'll get there in due time, he's going to come from the northern kingdom, and that's going to be Syria. All right, the, where are we at? Daniel 8 tells us that the little horn, the Antichrist, will come from one of these four fractured states of Alexander's kingdom. All right, so, the, the, and now again, this is the context, and this is the point of all this. Do, do you see how it's going from, we have a ram, the ram was taken down by the he goat, the he goat fractured into four kingdoms, out of one of those four kingdoms will come the Antichrist. God's not trying to tell you about the kingdoms. He's trying to tell you where the Antichrist is going to come from. And instead of getting the context and learning from the chapter, people go and argue about who the, who the, who the he goat is and who the ram is. And what, what is this 2300 days? I don't know. But the Antichrist is going to come out of one of these four. You want more context? You go to chapter 11 and this is the one. You go to Isaiah and what is he called? The Assyrian. All right, let's, let's read verses 9 through 12, and then we'll take a break. Verse 9. And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great. You see how we, we went quickly past those first two. And look how much chapter is left. <laughs> The point is the little horn. That's what God's trying to tell us about. All right. Out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. And it waxed great even to the host of heaven. And it cast down some of the host of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Now you tell me when Antiochus Epiphanes did that. And, I mean, you run the cross-references. What are the stars of heaven? Somebody guess. I know you're scared. It's not a trick question. What is it? Angels. This is not an ordinary man. He's not... He didn't jump up and grab stars out of the sky. <laughs> he's, he's fighting with angels. This coincides with, with Satan and his battle in heaven in the book of Revelation. They, they work together. They, they're, uh, they happen almost at exactly the same time. With the rise of this guy and, and, and going into the, the, the partway of the tribulation, that's when Satan is cast out of heaven. And he's, he's restricted to earth. And then we go from tribulation to great tribulation. He's not happy. <laughs> and he's going to show it. All right, so... Where were we? What, what verse did we leave on here? So uh, verse 10, And it waxed great even to the host of heaven, 
And it cast down some of the host of, uh, and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And an host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. All right, so I believe the little horn from Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 are the same person, which, are, which is the Antichrist. And, and it's, you're getting some information about him in Daniel 7, you get more information about him in Daniel 8, and you get more information about him in Daniel 11. It's not describing two different people or three different people. Uh, I also acknowledge the difficulty of understanding this passage when it intermingles historical realities with, the, with future prophecy and that, that takes place in the time of the end. All right, so some of this is going to happen in Daniel's day. And some's going to happen in the end. All right, but, the, but the focus is what's going to happen in the end. Not what's going to happen in Daniel's day. So, I mean, if, if it's true that uh, Persia is encamping around Babylon at that time, then Daniel's about to meet Darius and Cyrus, <laughs> All right, which, which is going to be the, the, the ram, though he won't be around for the he-goat. Uh, but, but that's going to happen after him. It's, it's, it's all going to take place. And so that's what... My, my assumption is that some people get stuck on that because, of, because some of it is historical reality. They, they try and drag this little horn in with that, especially when you, when you bring up the 2300 days and, and uh, what that has to do with the chapter. And so it becomes, it becomes possible to them, in their minds at least, uh, to make this all historical and none of it future. You can't do that. It's not all future and it's not all historical. You've got to carefully sift through and put things where they belong. But the goal of the chapter is to introduce you to the Antichrist and tell you what he's going to do in the time of the end. Time of the end is always the end of the tribulation and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Always. Now, because of this complexity, some teach that the little horn of Daniel 8 is the historical figure known as Antiochus Epiphanes. This man was an evil ruler who eventually descended from the Greek empire. Now, he came from here, from Syria, he, which, which we'll, we'll look at some of the names of the, of the generals in a minute, um, but it's the Seleucid Empire, and uh, he, he, he came from there. But even his coming to power doesn't match anything in Daniel 8. It makes no sense. The only thing that he did that matches Daniel 8 is desecrate the temple. That's it. Nothing else about this man. Like he died a natural death on his own. He didn't die. Jesus didn't take him out. Like Jesus didn't return. And, and the Bible says he was, ta- he was you know, destroyed without hand. He just died. That's it. All right, so it's, it's, it doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. And, and I'm not intending to harp on it so much, but it's a, it's a popular teaching. And it, it doesn't fit the context of the chapter. It violates the context. It, it, it can't work. Antiochus Epiphanes can't be the little horn. The little horn is the Antichrist. And I think that seems abundantly clear to me. I don't understand how it could be 
reasonably seen some other way without completely throwing away what the chapter is trying to, to, to teach you. All right, so um, he hated the Jews and committed unbelievable atrocities, including desecrating the temple. But then the Jews, specifically the Maccabees, rebelled against him and ultimately pushed him out of Jerusalem. <laughs> well, that's not what happens in, in Daniel 8 or Daniel 9 or, or you know, in, in every other case, the Jews have to have Jesus come back and save them. They're going to die. Until you read Zechariah in those last several chapters, if Jesus doesn't come back, everybody's dying. And then suddenly he appears and, and, and he sets things in order. Well, in this case, the Jews kicked him out. He had, he had over, overstretched himself and he had a battle going on on one end of his country. And, and the Maccabees, because of his desecration of the temple, were revolting against him in Jerusalem. So he's trying to put down the, re- the revolt and he's trying to fend off this army and he splits his military and he can't do it and he has to, leave, he has to retreat. <laughs> Alexander could have done better than that. <laughs> you think the Antichrist is going to let the Jews and some other military put him down or, or overstretch him? That's not going to happen. And, and that's, that's what we're talking about here. That's who we're talking about here. Um, So they rebelled against him. They pushed him out of Jerusalem. He was not broken without hand and did not take out the stars of heaven. He did not go against the prince, which is Jesus Christ. He was a historical type of the Antichrist, and that's the best that you can say. So uh, we'll pick up there when we come back. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.